Stas. Podcaster. Podcaster, they called us. They cursed us and drove us away. And we wept, precious. We wept to be so alone. And we forgot the taste of bread, the sound of trees, the softness of the wind. We even forgot our podcast name. My brother, my captain, my podcast, my precious. Welcome, my lords, to Isengard. <laughs> I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is The Road to Isengard, our second episode on 2003's The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. In this episode, we're going to cover the incredibly exciting and dramatic moment um, in this movie in which we see the Return of the King uh, title card. And we all know it's not actually dramatic at all, but it has become a meme. And I feel like there is something about the the composition, the look, the feel of it, the, the merits further discussion. It is the reason, of course, why it became a meme. Um, but before we get into talking about that in particular, um, I think it is worth us talking about the, the kind of wider history and art, I suppose, of um, title cards. Um Back in the the sort of early days of cinema, when um, movie theaters still had curtains, maybe they do in America. In the UK, they stopped paying for that a long time ago. Yeah, no, not at all. No, not even a little bit. Great. Um, title cards were not actually a, a revered art form. Um, it, I, it's actually kind of shocking when I was reading about this, but um, they would start projecting onto the closed um, curtain in in movie theaters, and only after the title card had passed would they draw the 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 curtains open and have the proper screen behind it that the actual movie, the quote unquote actual movie, would um would be projected on. Um, that's not to say that like title cards weren't a um a, a thing that artists put time and effort into. Um, most of the well, basically until the advent of, of computer graphics. Um, in in the early eighties, um, most no all title cards were done by hand. Um, so hand lettering. There was an enormous amount of thought that went into it. It was not something that was in, within the the kind of domain of the marketing teams for the studios. It was you hired in an artist who thought about what the opening title sequence, the opening credits. Because as a good reminder here, until George Lucas broke union rules and um, wiped opening credits at the start of uh, Star Wars in 1977. Um, it was an expectation and occasionally a union requirement that you have um, the full credits play before the movie started. Um, so it was a high profile and forced, well, high profile, high value real estate um, part of a movie. And um, artists spent a lot of time thinking about how to set the stage for the movie that people were about to see, um, there was a, a, a quite impressive um, advocacy campaign from a small group of artists to get movie theaters to like open the curtains so that you could actually see the the movie credits and movie title cards um, as they designed them, as they did by hand. Um, and and um, there was a lot of thought put into it by these these craftspeople um, about how to best convey what whatever it was that needed to be the art the audience needed to be on board with um before a, a movie actually started while still holding to this rule um of 
showing all of the credits and showing all of the the production companies involved, all of the necessary disclaimers that we're now used to seeing just on straight black at the end of um, at the end of the um, the the movie. Um, so uh, there is a long and storied history of title cards um, as the art of cinema became more developed, as more and more artists kind of demarcated out the various bits of um, a, a movie's production process, a creative production process. Um, the the art of the title card um, grew um, and grew into itself. Um, and from, I'd say, possibly the 1950s, early 1950s onwards, maybe late 40s um, onwards, um, each movie's title card um, becomes a really significant and unique fingerprint um, for a movie. Um, and there are so many, I think, you know, I've already referenced Star Wars here. There are so many that that stick out in our minds as like, these are the, 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 the title cards, the title sequences that either tell us so much about the movie from um, the start really bring us right into the world of the movie or tell us the whole movie um, before we even know that it's telling us the whole movie or just set set the 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 mood right you know I'm thinking like the the sort of cosmopolitan 1960s magic of the the James Bond um, intros the mm-hmm. the iconic um, barrel um, gun barrel um, intros so to to kind of start off this discussion um, Manu my question for you is what are your favorite movie title cards of all time? Oh, man. Um, I mean, Star Wars is definitely like one that just jumps at you because literally the title card jumps at you or zooms away from you in its opening. Um, But kind of expanding beyond that, uh, the first one I thought of was Dr. Strangelove, Um, Kubrick's, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of nuclear war satire that's all shot in black and white. But it's written in this overly large, overly thin, like kind of scraggly little font um, that takes up the entire screen. And obviously it's a very long title, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, and they squeeze that in with the parentheses and all that kind of sticks out. Um, it's less of a title card, but also another one that sticks out is uh, The Graduate, um, which has Dustin Hoffman just kind of on like a, a walking oh, sidewalk, God. whatever, like the automated sidewalk. And it's just him kind of staring blanklessly um, with like a very solid gray wall behind him. But they like flat, like he's like on the right side of frame and they're putting all the credits on the left side of frame. And um, Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence is playing during the segment. Um, so that one kind of really sticks out to me. Um, and I think King Kong is another one that deserves a lot of shout um, because it goes back to you know, the golden era of Hollywood and when it was very much probably people cutting out letters and arranging them in some way. Um, And it is one thing. Yeah, I like that you brought up how they used to do it back in the day with the credits, because I think we've talked about before how like the openings of old movies were musically an overture, like they would play a musical piece that kind of summed up um, the movie you're about to watch. And a lot of times the choice of font and title card are also part of trying to get you into that mood, set a tone, like you say. Um, so it is something that I, um, have always kind of paid attention to. And it's kind of wild how we now live in an age where it's like almost no longer a thing. Um, you know, I'm going to bring up your favorite, uh, director here, Christopher Nolan. Um, um, I, I, I think this was just his thing. I just think everyone does it now, but he famously just does his title card at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do like that, uh, like his Batman movies, uh, he would start the movie with like the bat signal, but in the shape of bats flying or a fire exploding or ice cracking like Mm. he was trying to do different stuff um you know so i I, i'll give him a little bit of a pass and less so like the mcu which is definitely pushing that stuff to like 
hide the people who work on these movies. And, uh, you know, a lot of that's just in a standard house style that's taken from comic books anyways. Mm. Um, and then, but I'm thinking like nowadays, the one, the directors I still associate with title cards are like Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, basically, if your last name is Anderson, uh, <laughs> Paul W.S. Anderson. No, but it's just like, uh, uh, I feel like, you know, I think Quentin Tarantino probably comes into here as well. Yeah. Just like people who've, um, you know, what we would call auteur directors, even though I don't always love that kind of grouping, but definitely directors who feel, who want there to be a sense of intentionality throughout like their work, like the score, um, the visuals, the title cards, the fonts. I'd say uh, John Carpenter is another one who fits into that mold. I specifically think about um, The Thing has a really great yes. title card. Um, and uh, even like uh, Sam Raimi, I think like his Spider-Man flicks have like maybe the most amazing like opening sequence. Um, it's less a title card, but um, like Spider-Man 2 specifically, they got Alex Ross, who is a legendary comics artist, to basically recap the first movie in like comic panels, like in between a bunch of webbing um, while playing the theme. And like the, the Spider-Man, like the Raimi Spider-Man font was so iconic that it is the font for PlayStation 3's like official like um, like the PlayStation 3, that phrase on your PlayStation oh 3 console God. is in the Spider-Man <laughs> font because Sony owns Spider-Man. Um, like that's how, that's how hard that goes. So, um, I've shared a couple, I have a couple more, but I'd rather have you get a couple of yours in here as well. Yeah, no. So, okay. So I think it's interesting picking up on the Nolan thing, because I think like I had not, I, I mean, I like, as you rightly point out, I don't love Christopher Nolan, but, but he does, he is a kind of important figure in a change in cinema, which is like this turn towards the kind of nitty gritty realism. And I think it's interesting to think about like his placement of the title card at the end of the movie, like especially in kind of conversation with like George Lucas taking away the credits, the the starting credits and putting them at the end of the film or keeping them at the end of the film, really. Um, You know, like Lucas's concern with having the credits at the start of the movie was that it wouldn't get you into the right mindset for for watching Star Wars. Um, he needed it to feel like you are going straight into a kind of newsreel, World War II era newsreel about um, this thing that, you know, may or may not have happened, but it, it's really about um, building up, using the the title card and then the title crawl to build up the sense of this is a, this is an, a, a war story that you are watching and there is some level of re- reality to it, but that reality is, is, is kind of... Um, uh, pushed through this vector of um, of storytelling, of of newsreel style storytelling, and the Nolan thing is interesting because um, because it you don't get the sense of we are watching a movie that has a name and a title until the end of it once the movie has played out and it and is done um and it is the sense of like you enter into this world this story that is real and it is real and it is um and and it is alive until the moment that the title card hits and, and the credits start rolling um, and it's interesting to kind of think about like um well we'll talk about it in in the context of the return of the king card in in a second but it, it's interesting to think about how like so much about how these different directors relationships to the stories that they are trying to tell through these movies is actually revealed through like the placement the design of these title cards yeah um and coming back to that uh i think like for nolan and i'm probably being very charitable and giving credit to a director i like um but like i think his title cards are at the end are almost meant to be like a punctuation mark or a mic drop like uh, just to take the simplest version of this like the batman stories um like the dark knight ends with a gary oldman dialogue that ends with him saying the dark knight and then bam title card bam credits 
Um, the end of Dark Knight Rises is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, you know, finding the Batcave and rising up or whatever. And then it cuts to the Dark Knight Rises or Inception. It's like that top spinning. And right just as it wobbles, it cuts to Inception. It's kind of like he's yelling at you like, this is the ending. This is the end. Um, and it's kind of a different way to approach it, which I can appreciate, even if, you know, the fact that it's so copycatted and now it's just become the standard way that people do movies now, I don't like. Yeah. Um, but I do like that there are directors out there who are actually thinking about this. It isn't just, oh, let, you know, the producers come up with a de- like a focus group tested font that everyone likes and can read. Um, it's not that. It's a- There's actually some thought going behind it, whether you like it or agree with it. As opposed to, you know, let why can't someone else do it? Yes. And, and so this is okay. So so that that's a good segue because one of my favorite title cards, title sequences recently is is Tar. Um and and Todd mm-hmm, Field mm-hmm. does this incredible thing where he brings back um the the full or it's actually the full closing credits, which are um actually slightly different in terms of what they have to have. Um uh, then opening uh, credits. He plays the full closing credits at the start of the movie. And um, it's all like, it's a very mundane, quote unquote, mundane looking title sequence because it's just a black screen with some very simple serifed white font um, and a singer mm-hmm. in the background. Um, and and I remember watching it and sitting down to watch it. And, and at first being like, hang on, did Amazon like accidentally skip to the end? Like what's <laughs> going on here? Um, and then as I was kind of sitting there, and it is quite a long title sequence, um, sitting there and, you know, watching and looking at these names and 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 thinking about the fact that, like, I was now having to pay more attention to this movie than or thinking more about the mechanics of this movie than I otherwise would have been um, mm-hmm. instead of just sitting down to watch the movie and sort of watching the the plot. And if anything about the how the movie was made kind of took me then maybe I would think about it. From the start, it was making me go, why is this movie doing things the way that it is doing? And then suddenly I was so much more engaged for for the rest of the movie because it had had been done like that. And also as a kind of aside, um, so I was watching it with, with Connor, my partner, and he clocked at the very back half of the 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 credits um, a video game um, uh, developer. <laughs> and he went, I wonder why that's in there. Um, and then at the end, that was like, Chekhov's cannon firing, um, quite possibly one of the funniest things I've ever experienced in a movie. Um, so that was a great kind of additional level to to this. Um, but it's also so different, I think, to, to some of my other favorite ones. So like the one for me that when I think of title credits, it's it's the the number one um, is Grease, um, the movie. And, and Grease is doing um, a, a fantastic series of things, which is like one... Um, it's a beautifully designed and, and drawn title sequence. It's all the cartoons. Um, so that's great. It's really telling you from the start that this is going to be a very stylized um, and um, fantastical um, it, in as much as it looks like suburban Chicago, which I don't know, I can neither confirm nor deny it. And as much as it looks like, uh, you know, the suburban Chicago of this world of our world in the 1950s, there's also something a little mm. bit fantastic and a little bit, um, well, a little bit musical like um, it is it is this is a movie mm-hmm. that is now going to be more of the world of like Rogers and Hammerstein than it is and or Gilbert and Sullivan um, than it is of the world <laughs> of uh, obviously um, preceding this name by, you know, 50 years, but, you know, not the world of, of Christopher Nolan, for example. Um, or of, of Kubrick. Um, it is a it is a whimsical. It is an interesting world. Um, but then it also has this um, kind of 
setting moment where, you know, now we all kind of know, okay, Greece is like, it's the 50s. But it it, it takes this nostalgia and says, this is what it actually looks like. And, and look at what these characters, these these figures of like 1950s stereotype, um, don't forget that that's what they actually are. Like these people, these characters may have a sort of more whole and, and complete character to them as you get into the story itself. But like, here's the cast of characters and here's what you need to know about them from the start. Um, so I love that. And then of course, it's just the great music. It's Frankie Valli, yada, yada, yada. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Love that. Um, and that one is, I think, my lovely little contrast to my other favorite one, which is To Kill a Mockingbird, um, which is also one of my favorite movies of all time. But that one is so simple and so like cluttered. It feels like you're going through your grandmother's um, attic, which of course, in in terms of the the story, um, it is... It is um, Elder Scout um, telling the story of this time in her life when she was a child. So in effect, it is going through the attic of, of a grandmother's mind. Um, and, you know, there's the, the the child like, you know, she's doing a rubbing to get the name to kill a mockingbird out on. It's all very childlike and it's really going and with the beautiful music and it's saying this is a child's story. You are entering the world of a child as remembered by an adult, but you are entering the world of a child and and notice the simple, notice the mundane, think about the simple and the mundane in a way that you were able to do when you were a child, but you may have lost since then. Um, and and that's that kind of, you know, those two things are this very um, A and B, I guess, of this hyper-stylized title sequence world um, that we don't really have anymore because now we have things that are, well, uh, if we have them, um, they're more like, you know, the Terminator start, which is, again, another great one where it's just the title going through and and not a huge amount else visually happening except for this incredible thing. Um, and, and I think all of this kind of builds this interesting contrast to me for what we will later talk about in the Return of the King title card, which is like um, there is a simplicity now when directors actually think about it. Um, or think enough to do a, a genuine kind of title sequence. There's a simplicity now to how those title sequences fit into movies that maybe wasn't there 20, 30 years. Well, maybe not 20, 30 years ago, 30, 40 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get that. It, like the Terminator was one I thought about too. And it's even less so about the card. It's just, I remember the sound of the title card. Do, 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 do. Like, it's just like, it's like hitting you with every letter yeah. of it. Um, I think it's actually something the fugitive kind of mimics a Ooh. little bit in, as well. Um, it's got the same kind of bluish font and just kind of hits you with the title card. Um, and I, I think it's more uh, to quote Grandpa Simpson, the style of at the time, <laughs> as opposed to like the fugitive being like, this is an homage to Terminator Two, even though both are kind of chase movies. Um, ooh, I should think about that more. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I I think that's great. Um, what else? Uh, I, to I'll also admit here when you. You put To Kill a Mockingbird in the show notes as T-K-A-M. And I've been sitting here for like two hours trying to figure out what the hell that was supposed to be. I'm like, is that a Bond movie's initials I'm just not making right now? Um, Another one I really want to call out is Napoleon Dynamite. And I'm not just saying that because um, the combination of both Napoleon and Mormonism might cause Emily psychic damage. (laughs) But uh, I like... I don't want to call it Wes Anderson-y, but it's definitely like twee in the same kind of way yep. um, where um, the Napoleon Dynamite sequence, which goes through the entire opening credits, like the studio and cast, um, it's basically little like handheld things from um, like school. Like if you were in high school, there's like some of it's written on a cupcake, some of it's written on like your lunch like tray, some of it's written on like a little origami star that you would fold out of your bubblegum wrapper. It's very cute, but 
again, it's there's some intentionality there as opposed to, you know, getting Calibri size 24 Microsoft <laughs> Word font uh, somewhere up there. Um, I really like that one. Um, I do like Beauty and the Beasts uh, title card, like the animated version from 92, because um, they do that whole kind of stained glass opening, like oh, prologue yes. to the movie. Um, and then it fades to black. And then you get this really highly stylized Beauty and the Beast, where I even think they like in cursive write beauty like into the like onto screen while Beast is already like superimposed or something like that. Maybe it's the other way around. Uh, but it's it's just very, very cool. I think it's like my favorite Disney introduction. Um, yeah, I'd say I'm going to cap it there. Um, those are probably some combination of my favorite. So uh, one thing that cards. I'm just now kind of thinking about is, and, and it's because you mentioned the, the Raimi um, Spider-Mans, which actually also kind of ape the intro to Army of Darkness, um, another Raimi movie mm-hmm. where you, in that intro, you get the the recap of the last two movies and why they're now throwing them out, which is also a great move. Um, but um, a lot of the, the new movies, actually, I feel like every new movie I've seen that is like IP, whatever, um, lacks, a, well, lacks as a whole a certain level of confidence, but lacks a certain level of confidence or is so desperately concerned with marketing over artistry that I can't think of any kind of big franchise movie I've seen in a long time that doesn't have the franchise logo in the title card um and and i'm thinking about this like um well in in terms of the return of the king title card which i will point out does not have lord of the rings included in that title card it just tells you this is return of the king it does not need you to be like hey remember lord of the rings (laughs) please screenshot this and make this your facebook cover photo so that we can make money off of it um like all of the avengers ones that i've seen all of the guardians of the galaxy the star warses i suppose um they all have to have the logo in there. It's it's very much a marketing card rather than an inroad and on ramp to the story. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And just interesting to me to think about as well how like how much every kind of element from title sequencing to um, the whole conception and production of a movie itself has now kind of been handed over to marketing departments. Um, and and interesting to me where like I had sort of maybe like Mandela affected myself into thinking that. Lord of the Rings was visible in the title cards of these movies, but but in fact they're not. They're just telling you the name of of the movie and assuming that you're clever enough to figure out what series it is by yourself. Um, not something that I I had really considered until now, but but just kind of one of these things that is now interesting <laughs> and kind of depressing to me. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to both agree and kind of contradict you here just because they do flash the Lord of the Rings first. Like they do the New Line Cinema logo and then they do Lord of the Rings, but then they start the movie and then at some point they do the ah, good point. title card. Right. right. Okay. That's how I um, got myself there. Right. 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 But, 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 but no, but that's, I think, I think that just buoys your point. Like they do that, but that's, um, and like the whole, just the Lord of the Rings title card, not the individual book n- titles. I mean, those are heavily stylized. They're kind of like, what, like worn down bronze or something? Yeah. Like, I, I can't really describe it. Uh, maybe it's like stonework that's a little bit faded, like it was made by the dwarves or something. But like, there's intentionality there and they play it with the one ring light motif. So like those two things are always like, like in your mind, like you picture it and you can hear it. Like there's no mistaking it. It's the same for all three movies. Um, but they're able to do that and also give you the individual chapter essentially um, which you don't see. You know, Star Wars does it a little bit, but they kind of hit you with both right away. It'll be Star Wars and then Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Um, 
And then that all kind of feels of one piece, whereas Lord of the Rings kind of does it twice, which is kind of neat in its own way as well. Yeah, that's a good point, because it kind of keeps that sense of like, Lord of the Rings is what you're diving back into, like you say, and then you're just opening the chapter that is Return of the King. Um, I Now, now I kind of want to go watch like the, well, not watch all of the movies, but go back and see like the James Gunn guardians if they handled those because he seems like a guy who's paying i don't know 10 percent more attention to what he's actually making than <laughs> most of the other people in their stable uh, in the marvel stable um mm-hmm. no that no that is really interesting well he's in the dc stable now oh, but yes, I forgot, oh my god i completely forgot about that <laughs> classic um no no so it's just like th- there's there's a lot i think you know we talked about um however many episodes ago about how there's like this kind of transition from like at the the genesis of cinema like taking things that were previously on stage um and then and then you know adapting those almost direct and then realizing learning over time over many many movies over decades like what the limitations of our theater when you're transposing that into a movie and then kind of creating and drawing out the originality of like movies as a medium and then um, and, and then kind of adapting and going from there. And I feel like there's also kind of this element of like you're looking at books um, and and title or cover pages and books mm-hmm. um, and frontispieces and books as the like starting point for these. And then as we figure out, like, here's how here's what works from, from books, what we can maintain in a movie context. And here's what we can drop to kind of adapt and, and move from there. It's interesting to see that kind of artistic heritage still kind of lingering. Yeah, yeah. And I actually had Guardians of the Galaxy written in my notes and I was going to skip it. But since you brought it up, um, I think because I mean, even though James Gunn is adapting comic books, I think his organizing structure is the musical album, whether it's a cassette tape or a Microsoft Zune. Um, So that's why all three title cards have um, a musical uh, component to it. Like the first Guardians of the Galaxy is... Um, an actor who is kind of a shithead, but begrudgingly plays a pretty good Star-Lord dancing <laughs> and like singing to himself. Um, the second one is Baby Groot dancing while the rest of the Guardians fight um, some squid thing. Um, and it's playing to ELO's uh, Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> and then in the most recent one, it is, um, what's it called? Uh, Radiohead's Creep that plays as we kind of re-familiarize ourselves with the team. We start with Rocket and then he slowly starts walking and it's kind of all the single take um, as we slowly walk through and get all the guardians walking together um, at some point. And um, like you say, it's I'm not going to call it one of the greatest title card sequences of all time or any of them, but like someone's he, James Gunn is thinking about this. And that's why those are probably the only memorable <laughs> title card sequences from any of these movies um, is because he thinks about it. He pairs it with music and there's actually stuff going on. <laughs> it's not just like we got to show marvel's guardians of the galaxy 3 um it it feels like something that's like part of his vision for the stories he wanted to tell yes it's it's storytelling not sponsorship
Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Ah me, how hard a thing it is to say, what was this forage savage, rough and stern, which in the very thought renews the fear. We're a little more than halfway, unlike our friend Dante, but the forest is indeed dark, the straight road has indeed been lost, and the savage, rough and stern road does indeed renew our fears. Through this forest must go our battled, wearied group of heroes, fresh from the trenches of the Hornburg, where we left them at the conclusion of the last movie. This forest, Fangorn, is also one we have not seen since the Two Towers, when it came alive in full to break the terror of Orthanc. Where the forest that the three hunters stumbled near blindly through felt like a terrible tangle of trees, this version of it, though no less spooky, feels slightly more manageable. They are able to negotiate their horses through the thick boughs, even if the path itself seems little more than a faint sketch in the chalky soil. We mustn't forget, however, that though we empathize with our heroes, we are not, in fact, one among them, because we are merely viewers. The movie reminds us of this by taking us soaring above the seemingly endless forest, an inverse of the shot in Fellowship that introduced us to the malicious industry beneath Orthanc. The most high-budget text treatment of the series' three title cards blooms onto the screen, midway between the mountains and the forest, before fading as the greenery gives way to ruins, a steaming lake, and, finally, Orthanc itself, still a knife against the sky, but lessened in terror. We are welcome to this new Isengard not by the sound of orcish yells and metal striking hot against metal, but by the simple delights of hobbit laughter. Merry and Pippin are at last granted a reprieve. They are smoking, they are eating, and importantly, they are shitting on a field of victory. (laughs) Gimli and Gandalf alike are, in their own ways, less than impressed with the hobbit's behavior. But the hobbits are working, they insist. They're under new rules, new orders from Isengard's new management. And of course... Responsibility is a heavy responsibility, man. Gandalf is condescended to Magnificent by Treebeard, while he recounts <laughs> the events that have led to the flooding of Isengard. Saruman Saruchi died on his way back to his home planet. <laughs> Don't ask any more questions there. Pippin wins the Stardew Valley egg hunt, suck it, Abigail, and picks up an <laughs> orb, winning himself the title of ruler of Iraq and head of the House of Saddam. This, Gandalf cannot abide, and Pippin, more Uday than Kuse, hands it over. I leave you now, not with any sort of pithy finish or a sober look at where we'll be going next when we pick up the story, but instead with the direct quote of what appears to have been fan fiction that Manu dropped in the notes here. Give it to me, longing looks between Gandalf and Mary. That's it. Enjoy.
I thank you for calling out my show notes just because that should be Gandalf and Pippin. Uh, and I would have totally just said Mary. So thank you for that. Also, the next time I order Thai food, I'm definitely going to put some saruchi sauce on it. Uh, oh, boy. Okay, so let's actually talk about what's happening in these scenes here. Um, so we cut from the crossroads um, that Sam and Frodo and Gollum were on to this road to Isengard, as we're calling this episode. Um, it kind of re-emphasizes the fact that, you know, there's a lot of things about roads. The road goes ever on, someone once said uh, at some point in some <laughs> other story, maybe this one. Um, one thing I really like about this is that this is actually a scene that I think works for me in both the theatrical and extended yeah. edition. Um, to recap people, um, in the theatrical edition of The Two Towers, we do not see the Huorns or the like trees that are not Ents. Um, we do not see them, you know, going to like create a forest right outside of the Helm's Deep or the Gorge or whatever. Um, we don't see the orcs running into them and getting like shivved by tree branches <laughs> off screen or whatever. Um, so coming into this movie the first time watching it in theaters, theatrical edition, I just thought that they were going through normal Fangorn. It's like, okay, we finished the stuff at Helm's Deep and now we got to go catch up with Treebeard and Merry and Pippin because Gandalf knows they're there. Um, so to me, it was just like, oh, we're just going back and this is just like fangorn as it was the one that marched on the uh, marched on isengard but obviously not all the trees of fangorn are ants um so this is fine this is normal this is a setting we've been to but then coming back to this after seeing the extended edition i do realize that this is the path of trees that was created by those extended edition scenes and i believe in the extended edition of return of the king they just briefly call it out um so that you're kind of aware of that fact um but i do like it i do like that it works in both ways like regardless of your headcanon or whatever version of films you're watching, um, you absolutely know, um, or it, it works in either context, rather. Yeah, and and I think there's, so, I mean, forest imagery in Lord of the Rings, this is like a thing I love hammering on about, and, and um, forests play an interesting kind of part in um, the history of, of European literature, like the thing that I quoted at the top of the recap there, that's the the opening two stanzas of Dante's Inferno. Um, and he's talking about being lost in a forest. And and the forest is just one of these really interesting symbols, motifs in, in his writing because he uses it as this metaphor for for life. And, and life is a complex forest. And he had fallen off the the righteous way, the the straightforward pathway, um, and, and so needs to be rescued brought back onto the correct pathway brought back into the light of, of god of christ um by going through traversing um the, the 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 three kind of segments of the afterlife um to put it bluntly um and and the thing that is interesting about this forest is that though at the start um dante paints this picture of it as um a, a thing that is unknowable a thing that is um almost chaotic and anarchic is without rules um the forest itself, um, or the forest itself, is is all part of God's dominion. So there is no true chaos. There is no true anarchy. There, there is there is only things as God wills it. And this is kind of the lesson that one of the many lessons that Dante is learning as as he progresses through this this Odyssey of his is that um, things are as God wills them to be, or as God allows them to be. Um, and you know, this is this is true from Dante wandering and getting lost in his thirty third year of life to. 
um, Lucifer, the automaton, um, only able to sort of devour um, um, uh, unendingly in in the darkest, uh, iciest pits of of hell, um, and and that I think is worth calling out because Fangorn, um, in the course of these movies and and indeed in the books, goes from this thing that is um, unknowable, mysterious, out with the ken of sort of this modernity, this contemporaneity that we that we inhabit with these characters to, you know, where like literally in the two towers, they are having to like stumble around on foot, crawl around at points because it is so unnavigable um, to now um, Aragorn and company sitting, you know, uh, kingly um, on their steeds. Um, yes, the path is not well marked out. It's not a paved road, but they are able to traverse, cross through this forest and and the continued sort of anarchic nature of this forest is because they have reached a settlement that that does not disadvantage them um, with the forest itself. And that is so like in line with how um, the nobility in particular in Western Europe, Northwestern Europe really thought about um, forests um, in in um in their sort of writings and in the the loud literature, you know, forests are a thing that are an allowed bit of chaos and a loud bit of anarchy. Um, but they must always be something that these these figures, these great figures, can can traverse. And fitting that in right before we see the words "Return of the King," we see Aragorn able to have some level of command, some level of control over this thing that was previously not controllable or not willing to bend and allow him free and easy passage. That is this first kind of step in this movie of Aragorn becoming this king again. Oh, that's really good. And yeah, you know, we talk about the road going ever on and on, but this is also like, that also happens because new roads are made. And this is literally like a new road that's connecting these two places now, which uh, itself is nice. But, um, you know, the concept I've, you know, been in love with the last couple episodes is talking about overtures, um, and I think about the phrase there and back again, um, and specifically the back again portion. Mm. And this little port, you know, the the last 40 minutes of this movie and especially um, the book, like the last half of uh, book six of The Lord of the Rings is all about the back again. Right. It's we've beaten the ring and um, we've gone. you know, this is our journey back. You know, everyone drops off, gets off at their train stop until we get back to the Shire and eventually the Grey Havens. Um, but it's back again. But ever since the Council of Elrond, honestly, ever since Bree, we've only been going to new places, right? We've not really been going back to anywhere we've been so far. Yeah. And this movie um, opens up with us literally going back to a couple locations we had been before, um, Isengard and um, Edoras. And then after that, we start going to new places. We start going to Dunharrow. We start going to Minas Tirith. Um, we start going to Minas... Morgul. So like we Ooh. get back onto the their portion, but the we get a little kind of shout out to the back again portion at the beginning of this movie, um, which is going to be a big part of the last third of the movie. So I kind of like that that also kind of sets us up for that. Yes. Oh, my God. No, that's brilliant. Because I think there's also like, right, like who who are the characters that are getting to go back again at the start of this. It is mm. Aragorn, it is Marion Pippin, it is Theoden, it is um, the three hunters. It is the people who will persist um, at the end of this war. Um, they are retreading these paths because they are establishing these things as things that will remain. Um, this, you know, if The Two Towers is all about blowing open the world and and showing how big it really is and how how many roads there are within it and, and how wide the passage is, 
Return of the King is about settling what this world will look like when when the war is done. Um, and so these there are these group of people that are getting to do the back again. And then the, the characters that are still doing the there are Frodo and Sam. And Sam, to a lesser extent, will be fine and he will get to do the back again. But but Frodo is really the anchoring point of that story. And so Frodo is still stuck on the the there because there really isn't going to be a place for Frodo in this world in, in Middle Earth after the the quest for the ring has been completed. Um and and so to have that kind of harsh contrast, well Frodo and Gollum alike have this harsh contrast where they're still finding these new worlds and these new places are really um inhospitable. Um these other characters who are the characters who will have dominion over Middle Earth um once the the quest for the ring is is complete, they are starting to create a sense of familiarity. They are tr- you know, they're trotting roads that they will well, maybe not trod lots, but they will trot again, um, and they will be aware of, and 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 that building sense right at the start of, um, these people must know these places and must begin to be aware of these places because this is going to be meaning- meaningful later. Versus Frodo's always going to feel alienated from Middle Earth from now on. He will never be able to fully go back to the Shire. Um, and both of these things are important. Both of these types of relationship to home and to the back again are important. Um, neither is the lesser, but they are very distinct. Oh, that's so good. And at this point, we get the beautiful pan up uh, from our uh, Rohirrim riders plus hunters, um, and we scan up above Fangorn Forest. Um, Before we get to the title card, though, I do just like the shot because it tells me specifically that this isn't your, I don't know, your father's Lord of the Rings. No, (laughs) rather what I'm trying to say is... um, in the two towers, Fangorn felt very enclosing, like you were trapped in it. Even after, like, you know, Merry and Pippin are safe with Treebeard, and we know that, all the shots kind of establish Fangorn as, like, this vast landscape that they're just kind of stuck in. We only see them in the middle of it. We very rarely see the, like, you know, the camera very rarely pans up to see the top of the tree line and look out what's beyond Fangorn. Um, it's literally until they emerge by Isengard at the end for the last March of the Ends that you really feel like you've quote-unquote escaped Fangorn. But right here, right away, we're in Fangorn, and then immediately the camera lifts up out of it, knowing that it feels like it's kind of been incorporated into the rest of the world. It's not as restrictive or as, you know, the way Gimli talked about it when they first stumble upon it uh, in um, The Two Towers, like what madness drove them in there? (laughs) Like, how dare would anyone ever think about it? But now here we are and it's like, oh, this is fine. It's part of the world. We're able to like place it in context rather than just kind of being a black hole of mystery and darkness that no one goes into. Yes. And it's and it's such an interesting mirror to a very similar looking shot at um at the start of Two Towers, um, when Frodo and Sam are standing at the the kind of peaks of the Emmon Wheel, and um, the camera lifts up to show Mordor um, out in front of them, and and you get Barador in in its uh, full terror um, in the distance, and you get Mount Doom looking quite horrible, um, and then here you get a, you get the lovely green forest that now feels not quite so terrifying to us, and and the mountains, and and then you get an almost identical shot re- recreation of. Um, Orthanc looking neutered um, and the mountain behind Orthanc kind of standing in for Mount Doom, but as something that like, you know, Caradhras, right? Like that tried to kill them at one point. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like it can really kill them now because Orthanc has been brought brought to its knees. Um, and, and to have that kind of contrast between like the, the um, 
well, almost like this is the blueprint in a way for what Mordor might become if they are successful. Um, yes, there is this kind of damage. Um, yes, there is this kind of, there's still the fear that rumbles beneath. Um, there is still a sense of the unknown in bits and pieces, but like, it is something that can be controlled and can be brought back to something that is a lot nicer than what it previously was. Yeah, and I'm like really the last person to, who should make this analogy, but it does it does feel like the baptismal of Isengard, like it is born yes. anew in the light of God, um, because we've seen Isengard all through the first two movies, but almost in a very specific, like color drained out of it palette, like and sp very specifically. So it's supposed to be grays and then browns and then fires, like down in the caverns of Isengard. Um, but here is. Um, it's a little bit lush when we first arrive, when Gandalf thinks Saruman and him are still buddy buddies in Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but here, um, and part of this is because of the water that's, you know, flooding everything. Um, part of it is the sun that's just like beaming out in the morning sky. But all of it just gives a kind of life and lusciousness to Isengard that we had never seen. So even though it is someplace we have been, it is also someplace new. Yes. Yeah. I like the I like that kind of baptismal comparison as well because i i think there's something like um now like the baptism of christ does like it's not about purification of sin it's about like fulfilling all that is right i can't remember the actual biblical language but like you know there is there is an, an a kind of element to a baptism that's not quite violent but has that sense of like purification does not necessarily happen without a bit of destruction and without a bit of this kind of friction or, or, or combat to it. Um, and, and it's very much, I think, you know, interesting to look at it in the context of Tolkien having fought in world war one, of course, like this sense of, well, you know, perhaps there is a sort of um, purification process that can come out of these horrible, grave, violent, battles that leave something beautiful left standing and 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 in so doing like i think kind of fulfills tolkien's maxim of like you know don't love the 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 warrior for his glory but like that the warrior might still do things you know war in itself is not necessarily completely awful so long it is a as a purposeful let's borrow from tony blair like a just war um like you know there, there's there's this kind of um through this like baptismal kind of friction there is this like nuancing of what a war what the follow-on to a war or a battle is actually is and and this this possibility through conflict of something better yeah and i think they make that very explicitly visual or visually explicit by what like very center frame is just a giant hole in the wall that was surrounding or thing <laughs> like it lets you know something happened here something broke in and changed things the or thing um, <laughs> oh god damn it uh i guess i opened myself up to that one um but we do we do got to talk since it was our discussion topic of the actual the return of the king uh title card um which is written in the same font as the fellowship in the two towers um, I don't know anything about the font specifically, but it feels very Lord of the Ringsy to me. Maybe that's just like vicious uh, cycle at this point. It's Lord of the Ringsy to me because I've seen it in Lord <laughs> of the Rings so often. Uh, but um, you do get that lone Gondor light motif right here. Um, obviously, that's a little bit of an overture quality as well, since this is like, quote unquote, the Gondor movie, much to Emily's dismay. Um, and it all reminds me a lot of the lone French horn we got during the Council of Elrond when... 
uh, Boromir is talking about uh, Gondor, and they just play that one little bar of the Gondor light motif there. Um, I like getting it here. It's kind of calling back to that while also kind of setting you up for the rest of the movie. And also the Gondor theme just simply bangs. Um, I imagine we will be playing it a lot in future episodes. <laughs> Please. It's so good. It's probably the only fair dig that um, Gondor get. Um, the Okay, so the the... Sorry, let me do this right. Um, this the font is interesting. It's an unsealed script. Um, and oh god, I'm not going to remember this correctly. Um, so unsealed calligraphy was the calligraphy used by like Greek and Latin scribes in like the Middle Ages. So like let's say fourth and fifth centuries. I'm not going to get that right. Um, uh, but whatever. Um, so it is like the kind of genesis of modern capital letters like modern scripting um uh like anyway sorry so so you take that kind of unseal script that unseal calligraphy um and then create it into a series of fonts which like obviously was done and then they applied it here but but the reason that it's interesting that it has this kind of like long-reaching um history is the fact that i think that like fits so nicely with like how tolkien thought about his books so like to take a, a script that has this that harkens back to um, the, the the genesis of like English written language, um, obviously preceding English itself, but back to the genesis of like modern um, Latin letters and, and how we write, handwrite those letters um, and applying it to um, this modern movie feels right. It feels of a piece with what Tolkien is doing elsewhere. Um, so a little flourish that I, I just love. Um, but I also love the like kind of balancing of the, the the text it you know the return of the king it sits halfway between mountain and halfway between forest it is this kind of um it is this this it holds a position of command anakin you uh, i have the high ground um that kind of thing um, <laughs> that it's doing um and and it and it it fades out before it gets to the things that 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 not anakin uh aragorn does not quite hold dominion over um it so it shows that he is this king um, of of the mountains and of the forest, but perhaps not the like more practical things like um, places that are not his territory. Um, and it's that kind of balancing of this like um, almost sublime understanding of kingship um, of of the lordship over um, nature itself in the temporal realm. Too, don't forget we still are kind of pseudo modern in in how we're looking at these things and borders still exist so or think isn't quite within aragorn's um purview um could have been but it's not so we're gonna we're gonna respect um un borders here and and not have return of the king over what is clearly uh rohan's um land um and that just kind of like combination feels very funny and like um i don't know that they necessarily put that much thought into it but i think it's a, a kind of side effect of um how they set up so many of these other little bits and pieces um throughout the movie that that's really what comes to mind to me there aragorn hasn't even said a word in this movie and you're already trying to take territory away from him <laughs> i just imagine after he takes the crown he's going to start a program of uh isengard irredentism to try and take it back for since it was built by the numenorian so technically he has a claim on it um or maybe we'll turn it into the Alsox Lorraine of Gondor, <laughs> even though it's on the wrong side of Rohan. 
Um, Anyways, uh, speaking of having the high ground, Mary and Pippin are high as balls. Um, We got Pippin, who, as we find out, has never worked a day in his life. But much funnier Um, for how you have this in the show notes, which is Billy Boyd, point underneath it, never worked a day in his life. (laughs) Billy Boyd has never worked a day in his life. Oh, I wish I could do the... Oh, I know you probably didn't watch Parts and Recreation, but the... Billy Boy never worked a day in his life um, for you Bobby Newport heads out there. Um, anyways, though, like I love this. This is like one of the most like pure shots of joy and adrenaline in any of these movies. It's just like, hey, it's Mary and Pippin and they're feasting and smoking and uh, they, it just looks so fun. They're having a good time. Billy Boyd's eyes look like super yeah. stoned when he smiles. <laughs> like um, I know we talked about how they took the like pipe weed tobacco ness and turned it into weed because it would just play better with 2000s audiences. And they were 100% right about that. Um, but I am still just so glad that they totally committed to the bit. Um, and like they, it's just true joy. Like um, they're having a lot of fun, but I think it's really when you hear that like horse whinny off screen um, and then you see Billy's face light up and then you see Mary stand up and he's like giving this big like gusto driven welcome to Isengard and you know the Vigo's beautiful smile gets in there um, even though like like you said Gimli and Gandalf are a little like grr hobbits um, they're still you know, there's still just a lot of emotion, even though there isn't like a whole lot of language. They're not necessarily like telling each other what happened that led them to this point. Um, It's just, you know, kind of letting the emotions that are honestly just carried by the audience as much as by these characters um, kind of fill in the blanks and let it do a lot of the lifting, which kind of gets you into the emotional space you want to be for the rest of the movie. Yes, yes. And and that's like, I think that like the chemistry between um, Mary and Pippin here is so central to like, we were talking about this last when we first got into Fangorn actually and talking about like Quick Beam, but how like Pippin in particular, um, and I think it actually really shows up in how like Mary's trying to like big himself up um, and, and be the Harold um, that Treebeard has asked him to be while Pippin is just like, fuck it, I'm blitzed. Um, but like Pippin is this kind of like, little deity of this little spirit of like childhood innocence um and like he's seen some shit yes but like he like toddlers falling off slides are actually like made out of rubber and if you don't like cry to his face and look really sad he's not gonna like cotton on to the fact that this is like a fucked up thing that he should be crying about but so because like mary's quite like happy and and cheerful pippin's feeding off of that energy and is happy and cheerful and and is really living it up um and that that kind of restorative power that that like deep connection to to joy that like pippin represents you know even gimli who's trying to be a little fucked off with them isn't fully capable of keeping to it because because there is something so healing about connecting to the the kind of joy and innocent kind of um it, just innocent happiness that that we are capable of feeling when we are young before we are, you know, battle hardened by the world and how, you know, Pippin is able to bring that feeling, you know, to Aragorn, the, this noble king um, who who hasn't actually been particularly smiley throughout these movies either. This is, I think, really one of the the kind of great seconds of it where he, where he shows that that secondary personality um you know having that is not it's not a flaw on aragorn's part we're not meant to be like oh he's not being serious enough or you know it's not a laugh moment for gimli like oh gimli's such a dumbass for for laughing at that it is this movie is saying having these moments is actually a really good thing um and like it is it is an important thing after something harrowing um happening to to reconnect with that and to find 
the joy in the flooded salted pork that actually tastes really good or to just absolutely like do like sit there and rip a bong until you can't remember where you are um and mary by contrast you know living up to um who mary is by trying to be the the elder of the two and trying to be the one who is interfacing more with these um nobles the these men of of high class um and and you know coming off a bit childish but coming off a bit more like a kind of 12 or 13 year old trying to sit at uh the adult stable than like a six or a seven year old sitting at an adult stable which i think pippin is more of um it's mm-hmm. just that like it's levity without undermining the kind of the 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 drama and the the narrative tension of the story is um levity that serves that greater purpose and heightens the tension um within that story that is just so magic oh yeah and i th- I think you really nailed it with mary being like a 13 or 14 year old boy here like he's literally um like i put in the show notes stunting on them hoes because as <laughs> Pippin is talking about how they're just enjoying some well-earned comforts on a field of victory, um, it cuts to Mary very smugly just blowing out smoke in their direction uh, with this like goofiest smile. Uh, I love it. Everything about it is super good. Um, and one visual call out here, uh, Gandalf, like, or Gandalf the White, just looks great against the Fangorn backdrop. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's the contrast, the colors, you know, back in a time when we cared about seeing the things that were on screen. <laughs> uh, it, it just looks really good. I, I mean, this is something we praise these films all throughout. Um, if nothing else, they understand generally the color saturation, the color contrast that they need to pull off, even if subsequent DVD and streaming releases haven't. Um, I think when they made this, they were paying attention to these things and everything here just looks immaculate. Yes, absolutely. It's and I think it's also like, um, they they could have made so many choices with this. They could have made so many choices with what an after battle scene looks like. You know, we've seen a lot of like gray smoke, um, that you see actually in the battle scene in in you know the last march of the ends in the two towers. Um, they could have maintained that for like that sense of gritty realism, but but they don't because they're they're making this kind of appeal to not quite like magic but to like um it it it, it is sympathetic weather basically is what it is but they've made the call to not be Mm -hmm. like what would a what would a battlefield after something like this happened actually look like they're like what would a battlefield after something like this happened feel like if you are on the winning side and what it does is makes the winners look like winners like sorry to sound like trump but like it does it they've made the winners look like people who are victorious all of them from the smallest part of this company to the greatest and the oldest, they all look um, like they have, they are sitting, they are shitting, um, to quote Billy Boyd in this, they are shitting on a field of victory. Um, and and it, it just kind of raises that hype level where I think there is a great sense of loss. And 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 um, um, even at the end of Helm's Deep, um, Gandalf tempers that victory with the battle for Middle-earth is, is now beginning. And like, mm-hmm. that's quite heavy. Um, and we feel like, oh God, we are still the underdogs. Here, we do not feel like the underdogs. Here, Gandalf looks great. Merry and Pippin look great. Theoden looks great. He's king again. Everything looks fucking banging. It's a sunny day. We've got our mimosas. We're going for a party, and then we're going to take Miami by storm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And another thing I want to call out here before we get to Isengard proper is, you know, we're going to probably criticize this movie over the course of this series, Um specifically for making maybe some cowardly choices or like (laughs) coming to the lowest common denominator in places. Other points, we're going to say that they're just feeling themselves a little bit too much. But 
Um, we are going to point out some of the decisions. And one thing that it just kind of struck me is both the Fellowship and Two Towers start or pretty very early on have just like a giant battle sequence in it or a giant action sequence rather like in the Galadriel prologue you see the battle on Mount Doom and then two towers opens with Gandalf and the Balrog they a very cowardly choice would have been trying to shoehorn some kind of action here in the first 10 20 even 30 minutes of the movie Um, but there isn't like they could have had just some stray orcs like in Fangorn just for Aragorn and Legolas to murk in very gnarly ways just to open us up just so something dies um, for like people like me who need to see action every five (laughs) minutes Um, obviously I'm not that person because I'm praising this but like we really don't have any action in this movie for quite some time um, because we're going to Adoras. It's going to be kind of, you know, mournful and celebratory there. Then we're going to Gondor. Um, there really isn't a whole lot of quote unquote action in this movie. Honestly, it might not even be until the attack at Asgiliath with Faramir and stuff. Um, and that's like an hour into the movie, maybe. Um, so like, I kind of applaud them for not feeling the need because like I've said, I like these movies a lot as action movies. Um, and they didn't feel the need to like, well, let's like pigeonhole something in here just so those people don't get bored. They are very confident in letting the characters and the settings and just the narrative that they built so far kind of propel you forward and not need to see Aragorn kill 15 orcs in the (laughs) matter of three seconds. This is where I'm going to wield your very correct, um, compliment of the start of this movie against it by saying like they are totally capable of making a very compelling movie without like constant action sequences <laughs> um i wish they had carried that energy into the middle of the two towers um and i wish they'd carry that energy into some other bits and pieces um later on in this film because like it is true that like these movies i you know setting apart the fact that they are like some of the best action movies of all time of course and like should always kind of like i don't regret that or resent that at all but like these movies could have been like 10 to 20% less action-y and still been among the best movies ever made. Um, and like it is, they have, they fall into the sense of misplaced confidence, I think, because um, this is a, this is a very well done sequence. This is a very well done start to the movie. Um, and it is towards the end where you can see they start to get a little bit nervous, like, oh, are we losing the people? But like, no, like they have done this start very confidently keep that energy keep that confidence don't get too mm-hmm. confident in the battle sequences um which then does happen which we'll obviously get to later much later um yeah i just wish that that like peter jackson and and, and his um colleagues had felt more self-confidence basically in their ability to deliver an incredibly compelling movie that doesn't just need those kind of cheap thrills absolutely so uh, let's go on to Isengard proper and Orthanc, and we have Treebeard, who has now accepted the position as IT manager, IT standing for Isengard Temp <laughs> Manager. Um, of course, he hits us with a one-liner, uh, Young Master Gandalf, which is always just one of those fun little things. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how much I want to talk about the exclusion of Saruman here. It might make more sense to talk about when we cover some of the book-related material, the voice of Saruman. Um, but clearly, this it's almost kind of weird <laughs> to do this here. Um, it's kind of like hanging a lampshade on the fact that we're not going to see Saruman in this movie, um, which I just felt c- feels kind of unfulfilling just because Saruman was essentially kind of like the big bad, or at least the physical big bad, who has like an actual manifestation of physical presence um, <laughs> in the films. Um, he w- he was kind of the stand-in for Sauron in a way. Um, and I know there's issues with that adaptation choice, but 
Um, it is kind of weird that they come here just to say, oh, Saruman's not home. Okay, bye. Um, <laughs> I understand what they're trying to do. Um, but it is, you you definitely feel the absence of it, especially given how much emphasis there was on Christopher Lee Saruman in the first two movies. Yes. And, and, and like, so one of the things that I'm thinking about, because I think it's, I think the absence of him is is interesting and like what the presence of him in the extended edition and then obviously in the books does is is a kind of a slightly different thing that we'll obviously get to later um but like you know if you think about fellowship of the ring um which to me is i think like still the like it is the most confident film in this series mm-hmm. um there are things that are absent um from the books there are plenty of things that are absent from the books but they are confident enough in the story that they are telling in that movie to not dwell on the absences. Um, and so it doesn't ever feel like, you know, if you've read the book, you might be aware of it. But like, if you're just watching the movie, you're not going, oh, wait, hang on. There's something here that's like obviously missing um, and something here that like they're skipping over because they're more or less turning to the screen and going, we'll get back to that one later. Um, <laughs> like, and, and I wish that that kind of, they had a, you know, like if they were going to make the call to, to not have Saruman in this, which they did, um, I wish they had just fucking gone for it um and been like yep whatever saruman's out whatever um they didn't do that so we get this weird kind of half thing and like the things that precede it are very very good so like i see why they wanted to keep it in but i think what i would have done is like cut maybe five to ten seconds of staring at the crunching skulls and the paths of the dead and instead added christopher Mm -hmm. lee back in because i think that really would have had that like it would have completed the scene as a whole um right now um, the dramatic tension that exists in this scene is really only a kind of meta dramatic tension in the sense that like we are aware that there is a war going on. Um, but there could have been a more kind of complete feeling to this this sequence um, by virtue of having Saruman actually there. Um, even if it's just to do as he does in the extended edition to literally, well, more or less literally pass the baton um, from Saruman to some other um great evil um as the the villain um i think you need something more to to kind of tie that up than the just like fucking poochy thing yeah no i i agree with you and as we'll talk about at some point like i i i just thought and i didn't really know much about this i was just kind of basing it off what i had read on the message boards at this time in 2003 but i was just assuming that there would be like a Sauron scouring of the Shire scene in the extended edition. That's why they just didn't have anything here. And I thought, you know, that'd be banger. That's a great selling point to buy the Lord of the Rings Return of the King extended edition DVD um, is if you got that scene. Um, But whatever. (laughs) It does feel like just like a loose thread. Um, Like if literally they had meet Mary and Pippin on the walls and Pippin said, oh, by the way, I found this. And he pulls out a basketball that's the Palantir or whatever. Like that would have been fine. (laughs) Um, but I do kind of like, um, you know, the Gandalf and Treebeard just having a few moments with each other. Um, I bet they probably have some fun stories to share. Um, not at this point. Um, I, <laughs> it's also funny that Theoden, um, who doesn't really have any lines of dialogue here, he does have some in the extended edition where Saruman's there. But it is kind of funny that in like the course of like, I don't know, half an hour, first he's meeting hobbits and then he's meeting Ents. And then, but he's like totally cool with that. He's like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm just rolling with it. 
Um, it's not like him looking all shocked and freaked out about it. So um, that's fun. Good for Theoden. He's very canny and worldly and not taken by surprise by the wonders of this world. Yeah, because in the books, it's kind of funny because he's a bit like, yo, what the fuck when he sees the hobbits and then is like, OK, I kind of know what you are. I can kind of deal with this. And then just kind of immediately gets taken into like this great bit of banter with like with Mary, where Mary's like, would you like to hear the history of pipeweed and Theoden's like would I ever and you get this sense of like after having first met the king in the golden hall as this stoic and closed off figure who is a bad king and a bad parent and a bad this and a bad that and 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 altogether not a very nice or interesting person to be around you get the 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 hobbit-y sense of like bringing out the childhood the the, the childhood joy childlike joy and these characters by Theoden being like oh my god this is incredible and and that's that is lessened here um, because it doesn't happen at all. But like you do get the sense that he's a bit more like not worldly, maybe, but a bit better, a bit more adaptable than we are led to believe in his introduction in the movie and the king in the go- the go- of the Golden Hall um, where he just looks like ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then lastly, in the scene, uh, we do get uh, the Palantir. Um, Pippin, who is nothing more than two cats in a trench coat, <laughs> sees something shiny behind under the waterline. He goes to grab it. Um, the minute he pulls it up, Gandalf like realizes what it is. He actually kind of rides up next to him in Shadowfax and is like, give it to me. Um, and I imagine it's like quite a stretch for Pippin to like hand it up to Gandalf on Shadowfax. Um, that's quite tall for a hobbit to reach, though. I guess Pippin added a few inches in Fangorn. Okay, that didn't come out right, but uh, <laughs> um, so he basically takes it, and this is where we get to my fanfic line that Emily mentioned earlier. Because after um, Gandalf takes the Palantir away, he gives like a stern look at Pippin, and Pippin looks down like he was just berated as a child. But then he looks up, kind of like longingly at Gandalf. I'm assuming that's longingly at the Palantir, <laughs> um, but it just get, they really focus on it, and I, I kind of like that too because Gandalf and Pippin are going to have a very very fun relationship over the course of this movie there there are uh you know buddy what's it called buddy road trip uh kind of cast here for the movie <laughs> i think there's like the cat thing is because like you know how when cats like lock onto their prey their eyes go all like slits the pupils mm-hmm. like you can just see pippin kind of doing that in this um and then i think there's also something like i don't know i don't know how i fully feel about it like how the whether i think they executed this well but like and maybe I haven't stressed this enough in the Palantirs, but like the Palantirs are like the Palantir are like an incredibly um world altering bit of technology. Um like mm-hmm. if you think about how slow the movement of information was for the first eleven thousand years of recorded history, um to to have two people on the other side of a continent a several thousand mile wide continent have a conversation was like one not really done for most of that time at all like a solid 90 percent of that time that was just like straight up out of the question um but then when it, it was possible we went from scales of like months it would take months to send one thing back and forth to it would take um weeks to days to hours um and hours was pretty much the standard up until the turn of the century um and only then did we get that sort of instantaneous communication um and when we got that instantaneous communication the world was revolutionized um and 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 that is what the palantiri are um they provided the numenorians and the gondorim and the arnorians i suppose um um uh, the ability to have 
instant communication across vast swathes of land, which was like far, far, like, why did we develop all of this instant communication in our own world for defense and military purposes, right? Like that is mm-hmm. also why the, what the palantiri function as in, in, um, in, in, in middle earth. And like, that is an unbelievable amount of power that they had and then lost. Um, and for Pippin to have this brief touch, this brief, um, interaction with, technology that is like frankly hundreds of years more quote unquote modern or more quote unquote advanced than anything he has interacted with is a like i think the closest thing the lord of the rings ever gets to um in terms of like a a lovecraftian sort of eldritch abomination like this is as close as anything in the lord of the ring gets to almost explaining or or gesturing at what it must feel to feel cosmic horror um Mm -hmm. and pippin's gonna get a whole dose of that later um but i wish maybe that that scene had been set a little better or or something to because like i think gandalf just kind of comes across maybe this is just me hating him but like he kind of comes off as a bit (laughs) harsh um with taking it from pippin because he's not really explaining anything we just kind of know it's bad and we just have to kind of respect gandalf's authority without like any sort of explanation for it. Um, but I feel like there could have been a way here to introduce what the fuck this kind of thing was um, that would have made Pippin's batshit anti-self-survival thing he does later feel all that much more powerful rather than just kind of like, yeah, fair enough. Like, he had a thing that was really cool. It was taken from him. He tried to steal it back. Like, yeah, we would all do that. We've all played D&D. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, because I think the first time I saw this movie, and obviously there's very little emphasis on the Palantirs in these movies, especially in the theatrical editions, uh, when Pippin does go to take it back at Edoras, it felt just like, oh, this is Homer going for the forbidden donut, <laughs> um, as opposed to anything where it's like, oh, because of the power of the Palantir and that he touched it already, it's almost drawing him, like, let's say the ring does for Frodo or whatever, or Gollum. Um, so you don't really feel that. It just kind of feels like Pippin being a fool of a toque rather than some kind of like attraction because of the Palantir, because of its power. Um, so I definitely agree with there. Um, it definitely felt a little bit as like they just needed something to move forward the plot the first time I saw this, you know, realizing it's not based on a book or anything. <laughs> um, so I, I can kind of see that. I do wish in retrospect that the Palantir got a little more emphasis on its power and its allure because i think it would make pippin's choice to go steal it from a sleeping gandalf um i think it would make it just flow a little better it kind of feels a little bit like oh this this is a plot beat we had to hit um as opposed to something that kind of grew organically out of pippin's initial interaction with the palantir yeah I am mostly keeping the Tolkien Tolkien book section in here because I love the music and want you all to hear it. Um, So in pursuit of keeping it in, I'm going to read a quote, uh, a direct, unaltered quote from The Two Towers and the scene um, immediately preceding Fatim and Jetsam where Gimli is reunited with the Hobbits. Um, Upon seeing the Hobbits, Gimli says the immortal words, where did you come by the weed? 
you villains. God, I am so fucking mad I did not read these books in high school or college because I would have dropped this line like every time I went to see my dealer. Uh, uh, but no, this is great. Uh, I love it. Um, I'm constantly asking villains where they came by their weed. Um, and if you do, if you are wondering why uh, our token token section this week is light, it's probably be, or it is because at some point we're going to do Flotsam and Jetsam and the Voice of Saruman book chapters as an episode, so we didn't want to give away the game. And I think also when we do the extended edition of Return of the King, we're going to talk a lot about this portion of the material um, in depth as well. Um, so there is just no reason. I also didn't think we would end up spending 35 minutes talking about title cards and fonts <laughs> and stuff like that. So um, part of it is that. Um, one good bit for this um, bit of meta history that we'll no doubt get into when we actually cover this is that um, Mary's little chat that they had in that I talked about slightly earlier um, is um, about pipe weed. Um, Tolkien writes about um, in letters, I can't remember who the letter is to specifically, but he says that like Mary, as he's writing him, won't shut the fuck up, um, not in those words, um, <laughs> but won't shut the fuck up about pipe weed. And if he keeps on blathering, he's going to have to expand it into an essay of its own. Um, and Mary apparently kept on blathering. And that is on pipe weed that we get at the start of the Fellowship of the Ring um, book. That's amazing. That's like... You know how those people who get into weed and then become super annoying about it? Yes. <laughs> um, and it's like, that's kind of merry, but at least like something like valuable came out of it. We got the prologue or introduction to the Lord of the Rings out of it. And Mary is MiddleEarthsLeafly.com. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my cop. Jesus. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get early access to episodes as well as access to our Discord community. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASO IAF. Um, I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be hotboxing or thank with Saruman and Grima. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.